Now, it's no secret the world still faces a number of challenges for this new decade, from climate change and inequality to the threats posed by nuclear weapons. On this first day, though, of 2020, with all the hope and optimism that can surround this time, we want to examine national and global crises with one of the world's great thinkers today, Jared Diamond, geographer, historian, biologist, linguist, author, also, most recently, of Upheaval, Turning Points for Nations in Crisis. Thank you very much for taking the time. You are welcome. I'm pleased to be with you. So in this latest book, you've examined major geopolitical events in history and how the lessons learnt from them can be applied today. Uh, by the way, I should also point out you are still a professor of geography at the University of California, Los Angeles as well. How do you take all these disciplines together and, and condense them? into a book that some might say is largely a political one? Well, all of the disciplines in which I'm interested tie into political crises, languages. I write about countries that I know well, where I've lived, and for the most part, where I speak the language, so that's where language is important. Genetics, to understand the history of a country, you have to understand where the people come from, and genetics is the best evidence for that geography is of overwhelming importance for understanding a country. So those are some examples of how you really have to understand everything if you want to understand a country. Also, one of the premises of the book is how we can translate the personal response to a crisis to a national response. Can you elaborate for us on that link? That's right. That was something that dawned on me as my wife, who is a clinical psychologist with a specialty in crisis therapy, began talking with me over dinner about what happens to her patients in crisis. All of us go through personal crises, say from the breakup of a marriage or from a setback to one's health or from the death of a loved one, a crisis that makes one think that the way we're handling the world just isn't working and we have to change fast. Some people do it more successfully, some less successfully. In the worst case, some people even commit suicide when they're in a crisis. And as Marie talked to me about what makes it likely that her patients are or are not dealing with a crisis, it dawned on me that similar factors apply to national crises, such as, do you acknowledge that you've got a crisis? People and nations may or may not acknowledge, and if you don't acknowledge, you get nowhere. Do you accept responsibility that you can do something about it, and it's not just the fault of those bad people or bad countries out there? So those are a couple of examples of the parallels between personal crises and national crises. Of course, a nation is a collection of individuals, of many, many individuals, but there is also the uh, skewed emphasis on leaders and we can see how, for example, in the United States today, and he's never far from any of our conversations, it feels like, on this show, uh, President Donald Trump is able to disproportionately weigh on the nation's response to crises compared with the population at large. How much power, though, does one individual have to, to steer a whole nation's fortunes? That is an interesting and major question that historians debate. My read on it is that Individuals make a difference at crucial moments, such as when there's a war or when there are closely balanced choices between two alternatives. That's true of the United States today, 
where the country is almost split between conservatives and liberals. It's true of Britain today, where the country was so closely split between backers and opponents of Brexit. And on my most recent visit to Korea, I was surprised to learn from Koreans that Korea is also polarized, just as the United States and Britain. So it's when a country is narrowly split or when there's a real life or death crisis like a war, that's when leaders can make the most difference. I must confess, one of the first things I did when I picked up your book was to look in the index for a, a career chapter. Uh, but I didn't find it. That's not to say you don't have opinions that we can come on to on, on the careers. But but what was the rationale for, for choosing the, the countries? I believe it, that was also something quite personal to you. That's correct. The countries that I chose are the countries that I know the best, where I've lived, where I've been visiting in most cases for the last 40, 50, 60 years, and where I speak the language. There's only one exception. I have a chapter about Japan. I do not speak Japanese, but I do have Japanese relatives, um, as a result of which I know Japan pretty well. And the other countries, I speak the language. I've been going there for a long time. I have friends with whom I go back for 50, 60 years. So the countries that I picked, they're not a random sample around the world. That's why I don't have Korea, because I I don't speak Korean, and I visited Korea only about three times. Instead, they're the countries that I know well and where I've lived, and that's, of course, the U.S., Germany, Finland, Chile, Indonesia, Australia, and Japan. Of course, in Korea, we've got a very turbulent 20th century behind us, and it remains turbulent in the 21st century, and I dare say into this new decade. But there are some general similarities that we could paint with Japan. For example, some of the population issues, like having a very low birth rate, um, having the challenge of generating new growth engines. But the birth rate one is particularly interesting, isn't it? Because you can't blame that on one leader. People at large deciding to have less children when not forced to do so by a government. What's your read on that? That's right. People have low birth rates despite their leader. Prime Minister Abe of Japan has been urging Japanese, particularly Japanese women, to have more babies. But Japanese women have babies depending upon whether or not they want to or not, depending upon what the prime minister says. On my most recent visit to Korea, the biggest surprise for me was to learn, to hear from so many Korean women and my business hosts in Korea were mostly women, to hear from so many Korean women that Korean women are even more hostile to Korean men than Japanese women are to Japanese men. And that's saying something. That was a big surprise for me. One after another Korean woman, when I asked them, uh, when I would ask her, um, are you married? Are you planning to get married? Do you want to have children? Um, I remember being in a car with seven Korean women one of them was married, but she said, my husband is useless. Um, he tries to do some cooking and cleaning, but he's so useless at it that I told him to stop. The Are you sure you weren't speaking me, to my wife? I'm, no, I was, not, I was not speaking to your wife. <laughs> well, she probably, she'd probably say something similar. By the way, what do you think is the biggest threat to South Korea today? Would it be something like a, a demographic cliff that we might be about to go off? Or or would it be one of the more headline-grabbing North Korea-type threats? 
Well, whenever anyone asks me what is the biggest threat to my country, my answer always is the biggest threat to your country is to look for the biggest threat to your country because the reality is that countries face multiple threats, all of which are serious. And if you look for just the one biggest threat, you'll be missing other major threats. In the case of Korea, big threats obviously are North Korea, that you have a crazy neighbor, the role of women, the polarization within South Korea today, which surprised me, um, as in the United States, and the juggling act you face in maintaining good relations with your powerful neighbors, Japan and China. Those were the problems of Korea that I heard the most about when I was visiting. But if we could broaden it out to humanity at large, and certainly we would also face these here in Korea, the the rise of automation and, and AI... It seems like we are hurtling towards the, uh, the the beginning parts of those dystopian movies before it all goes horribly wrong. Uh, equally, climate change is one that's been brought up r- repeatedly. We are shrouded in air pollution in this country and seem incapable of doing anything about it in a hurry. Uh, and, and, of course, many countries face those environmental challenges too. Uh, again, I, I, it's just very easy in an interview to ask for just one, but what would you say are the, the most likely threats to humanity at large? Well, I will give you four, which is tolerable. I'm not going to give you 37. Um, The biggest threats to humanity are climate change, as you've mentioned, the nuclear risk, particularly in the case of Korea with your neighbor, um, but the nuclear risk arises not only from North Korea, but India versus Pakistan that could blunder, the prospect of Iran, the prospect of the U.S. and either Russia or China misleading each other. Then there's the risk from the over-exploitation of world resources that we, including you Koreans, are using world resources such as forests and fisheries unsustainably, and we've got about a few decades left to get on to a sustainable course. And then finally, the problem of inequality around the world, that there are rich countries and poor countries. Poor countries are breeding grounds for terrorism. Poor countries are also breeding ground for large-scale immigration, emigration, which is particularly a problem in Europe and in the United States. Those, so those four, inequality, climate change, resource use, and the nuclear risk, I see as the four biggest risks. And awareness is perhaps the most important step towards change, so thank you for sharing them. Can you also give us a sense of the psychology of a new decade. I don't know if this is something you've looked at particularly, but I, I, of course, a big moment for many of us would have been as we approached the year 2000 and people wondered whether computer systems were going to go wild and whether unusual things would happen in the atmosphere. Well, it's not quite as big as that, but it is a nice big new round number 2020. Does that change practically the way countries and people live? Yes, the significance of 20. 20- 20 is that for the first time in world history, we have the prospect and the capacity to ruin the whole world. In the past, that was never the case. There are societies that have collapsed. For example, the Khmer Empire, based in Angkor in Cambodia, was the most powerful empire in Southeast Asia. It collapsed in the 1300s and 1400s, but nobody far from Cambodia knew anything about it. And again, when Easter Island or Maya civilization collapsed, nobody far distant knew anything about it. For the first time in world history, we have the prospect of 
ruining the whole world. We are sitting on a ticking time bomb because resource use and the nuclear risk, all of these things have time limits of a few decades in which we either solve them or we will never never succeed in solving them. So 2020, you could say, is the beginning of a 30-year countdown to whether we succeed or not. Jared Diamond, author of Upheaval, Turning Points for Nations in Crisis. Uh, thank you so much for sharing some of your thoughts generally, as well as uh, from the book itself, from your seat as Professor of Geography at UCLA. Good luck with the future and good luck to the world, I guess, over the next 30 years then. Thank you very much.